As my frequent listeners are well aware of by now, I love just how verbose people in the past were. The general guideline seems to have been to say things in the most interesting, flowery way possible, often applying liberal amounts of Latin, Greek, French, etc., which is kind of anathema to our modern way of trying to boil everything down to its core idea, and then convert what you can to emojis. So it was something of a surprise to me when I started reading some really pithy statements in the 114-year-old constitution of the state of Arizona. For example, it contained this chestnut as a section header, quote, A frequent recurrence to fundamental principles is essential to the security of individual rights and the perpetuity of free government, end quote. Which I think is a thought we can all get behind. By the way, if you still think that wasn't a very straightforward sentence, try reading the Declaration of Independence or the preamble to the U.S. Constitution sometime. But I think my favorite statement is the one that is found at the very front. I'm not sure who of the 52 men meeting in Phoenix in the fall of 1910 worked on it, or when exactly in the process it was proposed, voted on, and added to the final document. Also, as we'll see over the course of our episode today, not everyone among the delegates tasked with writing the Constitution agreed with it. Some, in fact, were so disgusted by everything that came after this line that they refused to put their names to it. But the vast majority of the convention, convinced that they were setting up a state of, by, and for the people, must have taken great pride in those opening words. Because the preamble of Arizona's constitution simply reads, quote, We, the people of the state of Arizona, grateful to Almighty God for our liberty, do ordain this constitution. End quote. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 166, A Constitution to Suit the Most Radical. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we covered the passing of an enabling act in 1910 that allowed for Arizona and New Mexico to write constitutions to become fully-fledged states. We then went deep into the weeds as we discussed the politics of the age and how the leading edge of progressive and populist ideas were on display in Arizona, which meant clashing with Congress and with President William Howard Taft. Still, though, the Enabling Act had been passed, so now it was time to write a state constitution. Getting it approved by Congress and Taft was tomorrow's problem. Territorial Governor Richard E. Sloan had set an election for September 12, 1910, for selecting the delegates that would head to Phoenix to draft this all-important document. And speaking of elections, the only regular elections that occurred in 1910 were for officials to oversee the newly formed Greenlee County. It had been decided that all presently constituted territorial officials would just be held over until the statehood question was finally settled, but the less-than-a-year-old county still needed to elect people to run it. Unfortunately, for the purpose of electing people to attend the Constitutional Convention, Greenlee County was too new seeing how the delegate count for each county was supposed to be based on the 1908 congressional delegate election. 
So if the question ever comes up on Jeopardy about which Arizona county did not send delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Phoenix, the answer is, what is Greenlee County? As I said last week, the question of what kind of constitution people wanted, conservative and sure to be approved, or liberal in a fight, was a major concern as people headed to the ballot box. The Republicans in Congress hoped to stack the deck on this question a little bit by putting into the Enabling Act that the delegates were to be nominated at the county level at a party convention, rather than through an at-large direct primary. The thought here was that by using the more old-school conservative system, which had actually been replaced in the territory in 1909 by the direct primary, that the resulting delegates would be more conservative. However, this appears to have backfired spectacularly. The progressive forces were both ready and well-equipped for this. For example, Mufford Windsor, a newspaperman from Yuma who would soon be a delegate, started preparing for the election in the spring of 1909, a whole year before the Enabling Act had been passed, and wrote to George W.P. Hunt that they needed to start raising at least $10,000 to gather voter and issue information to gear up for the eventual showdown. When the vote finally came, 41 of the 52 delegates were some stripe of Democrat. Historian Jay Wagner breaks down the outlook further, saying that 39 of the elected delegates, including one Republican, had gone on the record saying that they would vote for initiatives and referendums in the new Constitution. 30 also were pledged to vote for having recall in there, and 33 had been directed by their Democratic county conventions to include a direct primary vote into the document. So we are talking about some large majorities here all leaning extremely progressive. Now, the reasons that the Democrats were able to dominate so thoroughly can be broken up a couple different ways. Wagner says that the average voter was swayed by the campaign oratory and weren't happy with the territorial government, whom they mostly didn't have a hand in electing. In fact, people like Windsor, Brady O'Neill, brother of the famous Bucky O'Neill, and others made direct democracy one of their rallying cries during the election. They portrayed themselves as willing to stand up to those darn special interests and outsiders, like President Taft, to make sure Arizona had a constitution that would give the people direct control of their government so corporate power would be limited. And I think the record is pretty clear that when candidates can paint themselves as reformers brave enough to go up against the corrupt entrenched power, they do really, really well. State historian Thomas Sheridan says that the county conventions themselves handed the election to the Democrats. Places with high labor support, such as Yavapai, Gila, and Cochise counties, sent strict unionists, and they soon joined with progressive merchants and lawyers from Maricopa County who were trying to break the stranglehold that copper companies had on Arizona politics. The only places where Republicans managed to win was in rural Coconino County, which was controlled by Flagstaff businessmen and ranchers, and Pima County, where the Southern Pacific Railroad had influence. And like I just said, Democrats were definitely gearing up for this fight well ahead of time. Windsor, when telling Hunt that they had to get a move on, like right now, said, quote, The fight will be a hot one, waged on the Republican side at least with both capital and brains. This means we must oppose them with the same forces. End quote. 
And with Democrats picking up nearly 79% of delegates, I'd say they did more than just oppose Republicans. Following this defeat, the Arizona Republican newspaper bemoaned the fact that instead of statehood being reasonably within the territory's grasp, it now seemed a remote possibility. How were all these rabid progressives and populists going to craft a constitution that would pass through Congress? Meanwhile, the Democratic press was having a field day about the triumph, and people like Hunt repeated one of their campaign lines that surely the Congress and the President would not be so small-minded as to veto a constitution just because they disagreed about what was in it. I should also say that the delegates who did show up in Phoenix on October 10, 1910 for the kickoff of the Constitutional Convention were no slouches either. Among their ranks, we find the names of three future governors, a future Secretary of State, Land Commissioner and Adjunct General of the Arizona National Guard, President of the Salt River Valley Water Users Association, business leaders, and judges. There was even a minister just for good measure. So, though there was a pretty good mix of rich and working class, old families and newcomers, these were men who knew their way around the halls of politics and power. When the convention was finally gaveled into session, there were some important ground rules to hash out. One of the first debates was about how seating was going to be handled. This might seem like a silly thing, but it can actually be quite important. If you don't believe me, listen to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast about the French Revolution sometime, about how the seating for the National Convention impacted the delegates' politics and even gave us our left-right political labels. There did seem to be an idea floated to split the hall between Republicans and Democrats, which led Windsor to quip that, quote, it will be so arranged that the Republicans in this convention may be seated by themselves, if they so desire, in order that they may be free from association with the unwashed Democratic majority, end quote. However, in the end, they decided that the delegates would select seats in the order that their counties of origin were drawn randomly from out of a hat. Wagner also includes some hilarious tidbits that some of the delegates had trouble adjusting to the swivel armchairs that had been provided. One leaned so far back that he found himself on the floor during the introduction of the first motion. Another, E.W. Coker of Florence, who weighed 350 pounds, could only get up out of his chair to make motions with the greatest of difficulty. After the seating was decided on, it was time for a much more serious question. Who would lead this convention? Both the Republicans and Democrats were to submit a nominee for the position of president, though honestly, the Republicans with their razor-thin minority must have viewed their nominee's chance as slim at best. And again, Windsor was thinking about this question long before the convention actually took place. He would write Hunt in September 1910 that they really needed to get together to decide this matter. Windsor himself wanted to run, though he said he would back out if Hunt wanted the job. I'll once again go into an aside here to say that Hunt even being a delegate at the convention was not a foregone conclusion. From his time in the territorial legislature, Hunt had come to the determination that he wanted to be governor of the new state when it was created. So he kind of hemmed and hawed about running for the Constitutional Convention, 
just because he didn't want to have to back any positions that would come back and bite him with the general electorate when he made his bid at the office. In fact, the Democrats had nominated him while he was in Chicago on business, and he originally sent a telegram instructing them to take his name out of contention. However, he eventually bowed to pressure from friends and associates and accepted the nomination, though I can't say if his hesitation was genuine or a political ploy to create a grassroots effort to elect him. And the reason I mention all of that is because a similar story is about to go down with the election for the convention president. The Democrats would meet at an Elks Lodge in caucus before the convention started to hash out who their nominee would be. Hunt would actually second the nomination of Windsor, who we today would say was more to his left. Also nominated was Prescott business mogul and former mayor Morris Goldwater, a moderate, and the more conservative Judge Alfred Franklin. And then, wouldn't you know it, to Hunt's utter shock and surprise, I'm sure, someone nominated him. The Democrats would go through four rounds of voting, with Hunt originally coming in tied for third place, but no one receiving the majority needed to secure the nomination. After that first round, Morris Goldwater stepped out and swung his supporters to Hunt. In the subsequent two votes, more supporters would swing to Hunt, who finally secured the nomination. Like I said, it looks like Hunt may have manipulated the situation a little bit, first by saying that he couldn't possibly serve as a delegate, and then nominating someone else for the convention president position. However, he was also a good choice. Less extreme than someone like Windsor, Hunt could easily be seen as someone who could stand up for labor while also supporting business. At least, that was the view inside of his own party. Of course, the only formality now was being elected by the convention. You probably saw this coming, but Hunt cruised the victory, crushing the Republican candidate in a straight party-line vote. The Republican-controlled Coconino Sun newspaper would write of his election, quote, Hunt is a good presiding officer, but belongs to the radical element of the party, which it would seem are in the saddle. Unless there is a change in sentiment, a constitution radical enough to suit the most radical will be made. End quote. And really, Hunt seemed to bear out that general conservative fear. In the process of organizing the convention, he left out Republicans and even overlooked conservative-leaning Democrats when it came to appointing committee chairs. The Republicans did cry foul over this, complaining in one editorial that ran in the Arizona Republican that they had been reduced to mere ciphers in the convention. But they were such a slim minority that it didn't really matter how much they howled. Now, my sources tend to agree that Hunt didn't just steamroll people. Well, not to their faces, at least. He mainly wheeled and dealed behind the scenes, playing the game of politics that he had grown so good at. One delegate summed him up in a quote that appears nearly unanimously across my sources that I simply have to repeat here. Hunt, this man said, was a, quote, behind-the-scenes manipulator who presided in the manner of a stoic benign Buddha, if one can picture Buddha with a splendid handlebar mustache, end quote. 
Before we move off Hunt and into the guts of the Constitution itself, historian Howard R. Lamar says that he did believe in the people having a direct voice, which could be seen in the fact that he declared that the whole proceedings would be open to public view and that there would be no party caucusing. Also, there is something of a funny story that, at the beginning at least, the delegates kind of took a more relaxed view of their job. They were being paid out of $100,000 that had been appropriated by Congress, and attendance at the actual convention was pretty poor. Many blew the whole thing off to go attend the territorial fair happening then in Phoenix. Another delegate once proposed that they all adjourn to see a visiting circus, causing Windsor to object, saying, we already have one here. And that's funny, but they actually did vote to adjourn to go see the circus. Finally, Hunt did start to lose his temper a bit at the slow pace the delegates were taking, especially because they were supposed to be done in 60 days. Because of this lackadaisical start, the convention would end up pulling night shifts to finish out everything before the end. But I suppose that more than halfway into the episode about the crafting of Arizona's state constitution, I should, you know, actually talk about the state constitution. As you might have suspected from everything I said during this episode and the last, conservatives watched on in horror as the convention turned out a highly progressive document for its day. First off, they watered down the powers of the governor, spreading out executive authority to other offices such as Secretary of State, Attorney General, Treasurer, Auditor, Superintendent of Public Instruction, and others. What's interesting about this is that other states were even then starting to consolidate more power under their governors and strip out the number of elected officials. In this way, Arizona just missed the boat on a nationwide trend. State historian Marshall Trimble uses this specific example to say that for all its reputation as radical and progressive, in his view, the Arizona Constitution was actually conservative and even a little old-fashioned. The state's fathers were merely venting their frustration with the appointed territorial officials who didn't represent them, Trimble argues. As loath as I am to disagree with Trimble, to a man the rest of my sources say that the document eventually produced was left-leaning if not radical, so I'm not sure I would call it old-fashioned. There was an idea to go with a unicameral legislature. However, eventually the delegates all decided that they would have a 19-member upper house, now called the Senate and not the Council, and a 35-member lower house, the House of Representatives. In this setup, the five largest counties, Cochise, Maricopa, Pima, Gila, and Yavapai were each given two senators, while the other nine counties were given one. Legislators for the House of Representatives were apportioned according to the 1910 census. Though Wagner tells us that, when they were making these decisions, the Democrats couldn't help but put their thumbs on the scale. The five counties that were reliably Republican, Pima, Santa Cruz, Coconino, Apache, and Navajo, had a population of just over 58,400 and would have between them seven representatives and six senators. Meanwhile, the four safely Democratic counties of Mojave, Yuma, Yavapai, and Graham had a combined population that was more than 20,000 people less. 
but yet they somehow ended up with nine representatives and five senators. The Constitution had a provision that these numbers could be changed and obviously have been in the intervening century. For example, in 1953, Arizona citizens voted in a special election for a referral that locked the size of the Senate and the House at 28 and 80 members. However, in 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court would declare unconstitutional any districting plan for state legislatures that wasn't based on population. When it came to business, the pro-unionist and labor delegates fired all the bolts they had. First off was a strong three-man corporation commission, which could regulate railroads, utilities, and other companies that maybe got a bit too powerful. Added to this were anti-lobbying and corruption clauses, anti-childhood labor language, and they made sure that employers had to pay workmen's compensation and hazard pay. Oh, and they made it easier for unions to organize, because why not? As you can tell, labor interests really cleaned up, establishing an eight-hour workday, prohibiting companies from creating blacklists, and creating the Office of Mine Inspector. However, the more radical pro-labor delegates didn't get everything they wanted. Proposals to make it legal to picket and boycott were both shot down, as was a measure that would have stripped from judges the ability to issue injunctions, which were tools commonly used to stop strikes. The recently made bond between progressives, Democrats, and labor also began to break down as the extreme labor delegates tried their best to ban from the state their mortal enemies, non-American, non-union workers. Here they were thinking of Mexican laborers, but also those from Southern Europe who they wouldn't allow into their unions, but also feared as a cheaper labor source that could replace them. They managed to barely get a clause passed that banned anyone who was not a citizen of the U.S. or had declared their intention to become one from working on infrastructure projects for the state. However, when they tried to say that no one who couldn't speak English could be employed in underground or other hazardous work, or that such persons could only be 20% of a company's labor force, they hit some brick walls with the other delegates. Both those measures went down by comfortable, if not overwhelming, margins. But labor wasn't the only side not meeting all of its stated goals. Some radical progressive ideas didn't get much further than their labor counterparts. First up on the chopping block was prohibition. Banning alcohol was an idea that was building up momentum across the country, eventually resulting in the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1919 that ostensibly made America a dry nation. And this was true in Arizona as well. Before the convention even got going, a public hearing had been held to discuss the idea, with some 3,200 women filing a petition asking that prohibition be written into the new state constitution. One delegate, who was the son of the convention's chaplain and a minister himself, proposed a clause that was as problematic as it was simple. That was, quote, no law shall endanger the moral welfare of the citizens of the state, end quote. The ambiguous wording of that clause alone makes me shiver, but everyone knew that he was taking aim at saloons and the sale and consumption of alcohol. Wagner tells us that this motion was shot down with unusual haste and by an overwhelming majority. 
Another idea whose time had not yet come was women's suffrage. Despite being something that Hunt himself personally supported, very few were willing to put that idea into writing. Hunt himself had been criticized for not bringing a bill calling for full suffrage during his time in the territorial legislature. One delegate from Douglas proposed a special election for the people to decide on the matter, an election that would have included, gasp, women. But all that happened was that said delegate lost the confidence of his constituents back home. He received threatening letters telling him to move to another county, to go to England to hang out with radicals like Maxim Gorky and Emma Goldman, or that he would be forced into a skirt and a big peach-colored hat when he got home. One letter even said, quote, You ought to be shot. We are sorry that the recall is not an operation. End quote. Ouch. But at least history was on his side. Despite suffragettes pressuring convention delegates with petitions and postcards, the suffrage motion was voted down 30 to 19. Oh, and before I forget, they also outlawed polygamy because no one likes those Mormon weirdos, right? However, just to prove that the convention wasn't totally backward and behind the times, they did shoot down a proposed measure that would have established segregation in Arizona schools. Despite a lot of Southern-born delegates and sympathies, many of the delegates did have strong feelings about racial equality, and so they voted this down. At the end of the day, the convention did include those three magic words that made progressives swell with pride and conservatives gnash their teeth. Voter initiatives, referendums, and recall. All three of these measures passed, despite conservatives' valiant attempt to modify recall so it wouldn't pertain to judges, something they did to try and mollify President Taft, who had warned Arizona in 1909 that he was completely and utterly against recalling judges. Everyone was so cognizant of this fact that the chaplain even said in one of his prayers, quote, Lord, we hope that President Taft will not turn down our Constitution for a little thing like the initiative and referendum. Lord, don't let him be so narrow and partisan as to refuse us self-government. End quote. As we'll see, it turns out that Taft was that narrow and partisan. Still, the recall went into the Constitution on a vote of 38 to 9, which Hey, is almost the exact split in the convention between Democrats and Republicans. What are the odds of that? On the last day of the session, December 10th, 1910, the entire 25,000-word document was read aloud before the convention. It would be adopted in its entirety by a vote of 40 to 12. In the end, two Democrats couldn't stomach the document and voted against it, while one Republican actually put his name to it. The Republicans, by the way, had come up with this scheme where they were all going to sign, We Disapprove, but the Democratic majority quickly voted to squash this by saying that they could sign their name and home county, but that was it. A little political fight broke out at this, with one Republican saying that he wanted his right to sign the document and be right with posterity, while a Democrat protested against their plan to disfigure, quote, the greatest and grandest document since the Declaration of Independence, end quote. I have to say, as we move into the modern era, 
I'm really going to miss the hyperbole that these past eras placed on everything. Because of the refusal of Republican delegates to sign the finished document, Pima, Santa Cruz, and Coconino counties are not represented among the signers of the final constitution. However, though it was a huge, monumental thing the convention had just done, it was only one step in the process. The delegates had their progressive document, complete with their cherished initiative, referendum, and recall, but they now had to run the gauntlet of a skeptical Congress, a disapproving president, and a slew of other interests who weren't quite so happy about these ideas. So join me next week as this new constitution runs that very gauntlet, and some more background politicking has to happen before Arizona can finally achieve statehood. And on that note, the timing for this could not be better, as next week's episode will come out on February 11th, which is the same week as Arizona's 112th birthday and the day after the fourth anniversary of this very podcast. Now that's what I call timing. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.